All right, old school. Here we go. So let's take a look at the word etymology. Uh, what is that? It's the study of the origin of words and the way in which their meanings have changed throughout history. Okay? So when we, we approach this one word that we're going to take a look at, what I want to do is help us understand how it's been used for the last 200 years. And that's the word discrimination. Now you can go and you can look at Webster's Dictionary and go all the way back to 1828 and see how this word was defined nearly 200 years ago. This word discrimination was defined this way as the act of distinguishing, the act of making or observing a difference, a distinction as the discrimination between right and wrong. It was actually used in a very positive way. It's something a judge would do. They would discriminate. They would see something that was right. They would see something that was wrong. They'd make a judgment call and, and give a ruling. That was how a discrimination was used nearly 200 years ago. Now, fast forward 100 years, Webster's Dictionary 1913 had defined it this way. It was the act of discriminating, distinguishing, or noting and making differences. So it dropped the concept of right and wrong and just kind of stated as a broad, general uh, noting of differences. But then you see this showing up as well. The second, uh, second definition is the state of being discriminated. Maybe a little bit more like the way we understand it today. Distinguished or set apart. So I had, when we read it, like discriminated, we always think of it in a negative connotation. But 100 years ago, it was still seen as something that could be positive, like distinguished or set apart. Okay. Now today, you look at Merriam-Webster's definition. This is what it has to say. It's prejudiced or prejudicial outlook, action, or treatment. And then they put a very negative connotation right after it, racial discrimination. It's the act or practice or instance of discriminating categorically rather than individually. So taking a group of people and lump some, you know, putting them in a, in a, in a lump over here and saying, okay, that is uh, a race or that is a certain gender or that is a lifestyle or something like that. And so we, we group it categorically and we, we discriminate against that rather than individually. So 200 years ago, it was defined as a judge would, would take an individual and see them as, you know, right and wrong or their actions as right and wrong. Today, it's seen as something that we do categorically. Or the quality or power of finely distinguishing. So it's, it's defined a little bit more as finely distinguishing, not stereotyping, but really you know, finely, fine-tuning, uh, fine, finely distinguishing something. And then the act of making or perceiving differences. So it's kind of interesting in 200 years how this word has evolved and how we see it today is different than how it was 200 years ago. Now, for you and I, we see discrimination usually with a negative connotation to it. And it's kind of interesting, too, the way the word's been used. I don't know if you, if you know this. Maybe you've looked at some words on Google, but Google goes through a bunch of uh, different writings and books over the years, and they do their, their search thing. You know, they're the, the, the masters at searching stuff. So they can go over digitally and search how words have been used for several hundred years or a couple hundred years. And so this is what they found with the word discrimination. That in, and you can kind of see the graph there, but in the late 1970s, discrimination kind of hit its first peak. And then the word again, in the late 90s, kind of took a little bit of a dive, not much of a dive, but a little bit of a dive, and then back up in the late 90s and hit its, its second peak there. So for us, in our generation, we've heard this word quite a bit, but not like it was maybe back in the early 1800s. 
We hear this word discrimination and we think racial discrimination, gender, lifestyle, those types of of ways that we discriminate today. So I think that's important as we understand this word and this concept because both what it was, how it was defined in 1828 and how we see it today really is what we're wrestling with. There is an idea that, or there is a, a foundation to this word that, yes, it's choosing or seeing or distinguishing between right and wrong. But it can be taken too far and it can be done the wrong way. So hopefully that will make more sense as we, as we move forward here. Uh, question, is this really an issue for the church? You go to the church, like, oh, we're, we're, I mean, right now I look around, you guys are all such pleasant people. I, I bet none of us discriminate, right? Is it really an issue for the church? And I think this maybe sums up best what we really feel or what we really live out, right? Welcome to first whatever church. We don't discriminate if you're like us. And while we kind of chuckle a little bit at that, isn't it? somewhat true? Now, you and I would say, well, you know, when it comes to those major issues, we don't really discriminate that much. But I've found, especially as I've gone through this whole taboo series and we're working through it, that there are areas where I discriminate. When I was going through mental illness and I was reading people's stories about, you know, they were going through this in their life and and this stress and, and they were talking about it and I'd be like, Really? Like, that stresses you out? That's not that big of a deal. Then I would start to form opinions in my mind of what that person's going through and how that person should deal with it. And I would be like, man, I just want to take and, and, you know, take them by the, the shoulders and shake them and say, wake up. You know, it's not that big of a deal. That's some sort of a form of discrimination, isn't it? Or, or there are times in people's lives I'll watch people make all kinds of what I would call um, stupid decisions. Right? And I begin to elevate my decisions in myself. That's a form of discrimination. And it becomes worse when I begin to treat the person differently. Now that's really where the rubber meets the road, right? When we begin to actually treat somebody differently because they think differently, because they've made some decisions that we don't approve of, and so then we, we begin to maybe shy away from them, give them a cold shoulder, whatever it may be, and so we, we separate ourselves, then we truly find ourselves in an area where we discriminate. You think we struggle with that at all? I know in my heart that I do. Here's the difference, though, between hopefully a believer and an unbeliever or someone who follows Christ is that someone who follows Christ can own it and say, you know what, I do struggle with that, and I need to come before Christ. I need to ask for forgiveness. I need to ask for his help. I need to ask the church for its help, and I need to make a change and a difference and trust that Jesus Christ will help me make that difference. The one who doesn't place their faith in Christ may just say, well, I don't discriminate, ignore it, or redefine it. Isn't it interesting that the people who maybe show the most hatred and discrimination are the ones out there with the signs that say, please stop hating and discriminating? Man, we need to identify we do struggle with something like this. Be real. Generally approach Christ and ask Him for help to get over it. 
So we're going to go through a couple different subjects as we move through the scriptures and what it has to say. And we want to ask this question, first of all, what does the Bible really say about hate? So here's a few verses as we move forward. It says, you have heard that it was said to our ancestors, do not murder. That's that's a pretty good rule. Go with that. And whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, this is Jesus talking, I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Whoever insults his brother or sister will be subject to the court. And whoever says, you fool, will be subject to hellfire. This is, yeah, you guys make a big deal about murder, but hey, let's, let's look at all the rest of them. You know, anger, insulting, just simply saying, you fool, all those things are wrong. And all those things show hatred. Jesus says, don't do it. You have heard that it was said, this is later on in in Matthew, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So once again, uh, you know, Jesus is saying, hey, here's this this idea where we've got our enemies and and we want to hate them, we want to have anger, but no, you need to step back and, and love them care for them. Maybe one of the most difficult commands in all of Scripture, to love your enemies, love those who would hurt you, those who would even persecute you. What does the Bible say about love? Of course, there's all kinds of verses and passages about love, right? So we can can kind of find all ones, all kinds of ones. But but here what I'm going to do is just find some some Scripture that show love and how it's, you know, is, is seen with hatred. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who mistreat you. That's showing love to people that may persecute you or hurt you. You want to know the fastest way to forgive somebody or get over bitterness, to get over anger for somebody, is to pray for them. Start praying for that person that you feel like you're just so bitter or you can't get over, you feel like you can't forgive. Start praying that you would forgive them. Start praying for something in their life that God would be working in their hearts and transforming them. And then do this. Tell God you're grateful for them. In all honesty, like, I'm really grateful for that person. Not just paying lip service, but truly grateful. That person has helped refine me, changed me, caused me to think about things that maybe I wouldn't think about. It's caused me to grow in my faith. God, you put that person in my life for a reason, and I'm grateful for it. You start doing that, you have a totally different perspective about those who mistreat you or feel, you feel like are mistreating you. Love your enemies, do what is good, and lend, expecting nothing in return. Then your reward will be great, and you'll be children of the Most High, for He is gracious to the ungrateful and evil. This is God speaking. And then one more. I give or a couple more. I give you a new command. Love one another just as I have loved you, and you also are to love one another. So again, that same concept. I also read in Peter, uh, don't pay back evil for evil or insult to insult, but on the contrary, giving a blessing since you were called for this so that you may inherit a blessing. Our desire, our, our intent should never be to pay back evil to somebody if they've hurt us. Instead, we ought to love. And in there, hopefully you see just the, the tone is that love is something that is not dependent on how that person treats us. Love is freely given regardless of what that person does or lives or how they treat you in return. That's what real love is. 
And you see that ultimately in Jesus Christ. And we're told that God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When people were there hurling insults at him, when people pressed the, cor- the crown of thorns into his brow, when they beat him, they whipped at him, and they put nails into his hands, and he hung there. He said some of the most powerful world- words ever in history. Father, forgive them. The people right there, for they know not what they do. He demonstrated to us love and what true love really is. Well, what does the Bible say about judging? We've got to take a look at that and, and, and really ask this question because here we start in with, with Matthew 7. And like I say, it's probably one of the most well-known passages today. In fact, maybe the most quoted. John 3.16 is often said, well, that's the most well-known. But I think if people knew where Matthew 7.1 really was, they would be quoting Matthew 7.1 more often. Maybe they quote it in idea or they quote it, you know, Uh, Not so much verbatim, but they certainly quote the concept. In Matthew 7, 1, it says this, Do not judge so that you won't be judged. You hear that quite often? Don't judge or you'll be judged. Then he goes on, he says, For you will be judged by the same standard with which you judge others, and you'll be measured by the same measure you use. Do not judge or you too will be judged. So in this, this area, you've got a, you know, a, a verse that goes on, and if you take this passage and some others, you might even begin to think, well, the Bible's like telling me how to love everybody and not show hatred and not, not to judge and all that. Great, we're going to leave this place, and, and we're just going to forget about what everybody else does. We're going to forget about what, what God's law has to say, because it doesn't really matter. I just don't judge anybody. But I wouldn't be doing you a great service if we just ended it there. Because there's other parts of the Bible that do talk about judging. And so I think we need to look at some of those passages, and one of them is in 1 Corinthians 5. Now, if you go to Corinthians and you begin to read maybe the introduction into the book, it'll give you some background into the, the church there and, and what it was like. But in Corinth, they were in a, a very immoral society, kind of like what we would think of as the, the sin city of the time. There's a lot of prostitution going on there, a lot of sexual immorality going on. And so as, as time went by, the church was impacted by that. And Paul writes to him and says, I've seen some things that God does not approve of. So 1 Corinthians 5 has to say this, and starting with verse 1, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. And it's the kind of sexual immorality that is not even tolerated among the Gentiles. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. Oh, that's, that doesn't sound right. Okay? Now, it could be his mom, which obviously would be, you know, like not right. And it could be a stepmom, especially the way it's worded this way, which, again, wouldn't be right. And he says it, not even the Gentiles, not even the Gentiles would do this. And he goes on in verse 2, and he says, but you are arrogant about it. You're proud about it. You think it's like one of those things that, hey, hey, we're part of the church now, I guess, and God's forgiven it. I don't know what they were thinking, but somehow it seems like it was part of the church, and they were like, hey, we're, we're, this is good. And so Paul calls them out, and he says, shouldn't you be filled with grief and remove from your congregation the one who did this? Should it be something that you, you actually separate from? 
It says, even though I am absent in body, I am present in spirit. As one who is present with you this way, I have already pronounced judgments. Yeah. Paul's showing some discrimination here, right? I've already pronounced judgment on the one who has been doing such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, hand the one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. And when you read that passage, you may begin to look at it and go, wait a minute, he wants you to, to hand that person over for the destruction of his flesh? What does this mean? And I think the simplest way to understand it is maybe the person was a follower of Jesus Christ and he had, you know, confessed Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, but he had gotten to a point where he had been living in sin. And, and so Paul's saying, hey, hand him over that his, that his spirit would be saved, but his flesh would be destroyed. Or he could be saying, hey, just hand him over. And maybe when he finally gets to the lowest point, he'll turn back to Christ. Whatever Paul says, you need to make some sort of a judgment call and you need to separate yourself. Hand them over to Satan. Make a judgment call. So, you got all this going on. You have passages that talk about not hating. We have passages that talk about loving your enemies. We have passages that talk about not judging, Matthew 7, 1. And then we have passages that talk about judging the evil among you. What is God doing here? Okay. Does it sound like he's contradicting himself? Does it sound like things aren't lining up and, and we're not understanding what the Word says? Or is there something else going on? I think there is something else going on. So I want to explain that because I think as we look at discrimination and hate and all the topics that, that exist under discrimination and hate, we need to ask the question, how do we deal with things like not hating and loving and not judging, yet at the same time, judging? So, hopefully there's an answer as we move forward. And I think we do as we continue to go through 1 Corinthians 5. Paul explains it in just two verses. This is what he has to say. For what business is it of mine to judge outsiders? Don't you judge those who are inside? God judges outsiders, so remove the evil person from among you. Here's what I think he's, he's saying. There is... A world we live in that is a world of unbelievers, and then you and I, who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, live in a world in, in, of believers that we call the church. And when we live in the church, we have guidelines. We have God's Word. We have a relationship with the Almighty God, Creator. And He's told us how to live. He has given one rule for the unbelievers. And that is to confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. But for us who have professed Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior already, he's saying, now that you've professed me as Lord and Savior, here's, a, here's some other things that will help you live with one another and really help you through this life maintain the kind of holiness, uh, maintain the kind of standard that God has designed for us as people. So a couple of statements just as we move along. Everyone outside the body of Christ, which is the church, the body of Christ is the church, is judged by God alone. And his judgment is based on faith in Christ. It's like there's two lines before God's judgment seat. And you have over here the people who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ, and you have over here the people who have not placed their faith in Jesus Christ. It's not 
these people haven't placed their faith in Jesus Christ, and then this guy's done something that's really bad, and then this person's done something that's really bad, and then this person's done something that's even worse, and this person is like Hitler. Okay? Seems like that's always the worst one, right? We, we kind of like categorize them. No, it's, it's just this, this line over here, they've placed their faith in Christ. This line over here has not placed their faith in Christ. John 3.18 says, Anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned. There's your two lines. This is the line of the believers. This is the line of the unbelievers. Anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. Right? Everyone in the body of Christ, that is the church, is judged by the church in accordance to God's word. Now that might make you go, are you sure about this? So understand what I'm saying there. Is judged by the church in accordance to God's word. So ultimately God is the judge because he's the one that gave us his word. But then God has given us the responsibility to hold each other accountable. Okay, does that make sense? We're not to judge each other on preferences, things that we like. We don't judge each other on things the Bible doesn't talk about. We don't judge each other on dress or hairstyle or you know, preferences like music or things like that. No, we don't judge each other on that. We judge each other according to what God's Word has to say. Everyone in the body of church, everyone in the body of Christ, the believers that are in this line that have professed Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, are judged according to God's Word. Every judgment made by the church then, this is the next step, every judgment made by the church is done in love, humility, and for the purpose of maintaining a holy witness. If somebody in the church is sinning, if somebody in the church is doing something that's not in accordance to God's Word, we approach them for the purpose of restoration. If someone is young in their faith and they've just placed their faith in Jesus Christ and they're struggling through all the things that the Word has to say, we come around them in love and discipleship and we encourage them in their walk to give their lives over to Christ to be more Christ-like in everything that they do. And hopefully we find that attitude that says, yes, I understand that there are issues, there are things in my life that I need to, to work on. I need to give over to the Lord. And we come alongside with, with love and humility not arrogance and pride like, hey, I figured that out. How come you're not figuring it out? That would be totally wrong. They come with humility and love and for the purpose of maintaining a holy witness. Jesus himself looked at his disciples and he said, all people will know you are my disciples by how you treat one another. That's the way the church is supposed to interact. We're supposed to be his witness. The world's supposed to know that Jesus Christ is alive and exists because of how we treat each other. And how we love each other. Matthew 18 is a great passage that talks about how we are to restore people with humility and love. It goes on and says this, If your brother sins against you, go and rebuke him in private. Don't make it a big spectacle. Don't make it a big issue. Go and approach that person one by one. If he listens to you, great. You've won your brother. You make it right. And you move on. But if he won't listen, if he's like, Nah, that's, that's not wrong. I didn't do that. Denies it. Then take two or three of you. Again, don't make it a big public spectacle. Don't go and tell the rest of the church or the world or everything. Take two or three 
So by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. So these two or three witnesses say, yeah, we've waited out. We've seen what this person's done. We think it's not according to God's word. And so the two or three come to restore that brother or sister in Christ. If they turn, great. But if he doesn't pay attention to them, then you have to tell the church. And if he doesn't pay attention even to the church, let him be like a Gentile and a tax collector to you. In other words, like an unbeliever. Share the gospel with them. Ask them to repent. So these are the, the guidelines that he gives us when somebody is caught in sin and we have to make that judgment call. This person is not living according to the, Lord, the word. Yes, they say they're a believer in Jesus Christ, but they're out there doing, like in 1 Corinthians 5, sexual immorality. And so the church has to approach them and say, hey, you're not doing this right. And if that person is like, I don't care, I'm just going to go ahead and keep living in sin, then the church has to separate themselves from that sin and say, no, it is wrong. It is not what God's word has to say. You are not abiding by him. That sounds like discrimination in our day and age. But we have to live by what God's word has to say, first and foremost. But to the unbeliever, to the one who is, who is living out there in the world and, and doesn't understand who Christ is and doesn't understand who God is and, and is lost in this, this mess. I, I mean, you can go on, on this website and be justified by, you know, with your actions. You can find this prominent celebrity or this prominent political leader who will agree with what you're doing and say it's okay. You can find a law that will justify what you're doing. And so people will say, hey, it's okay. What I'm doing is fine. Why can you, Christians, say it's wrong? What do we do in that situation? How do we show the love of Christ to people in that situation? And so the unbeliever, I want to take you to a real-life example, an example that Jesus lived out as he went through a land of Samaria. So we're going to be going to, and you can follow along if you'd like, going to your Bibles, the book of John. We're going to be taking a look at how Jesus approaches a woman who is a different race, a different gender, a different religion, and, and see how he handles that situation. So here we are, John chapter 4. We're going to kind of just walk through it, and I'll make some points as we go through it. When Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard he was making and baptizing more disciples than John, though Jesus himself actually wasn't baptizing, his disciples were, he left Judea and went again to Galilee. And he had to travel through Samaria. Now, something different happened here. If you were a Jew from Judea, you actually wouldn't go through Samaria. There was, even at that point, just kind of like there is today, you know, in our own country, you have like your, what some people call the Bible Belt and the real conservative in the, the South. And I've heard people say from the South who have moved up to the Northwest that when they moved up, their friends from the South said, be really careful of the people in the Northwest. They're really liberal. Okay? Even back then, you had people who were in the south. It's kind of funny it's the south and the north thing again. But, but you have people in the south who were like the conservative Jews, and they would not travel through Samaria because they didn't want to associate with the Samaritans. And they would actually go all the way out of their way and go around Samaria. It would be like you saying, hey, I want to go to Boise, but I don't want to pass the Meridian, so I'm going to drive out to Cuna and go around. They would do that. But those who were born up in Galilee and were Galilean Jews... They were, you know, 
a little more forward thinking, we might say, or something like that. And they would go ahead and they'd pass through Samaria. Either that or they're just so smarter. And they're like, that's, there's discrimination. Or that's dumb, you know, going up around the side. Um, they, would, they would go ahead and they would pass through Samaria. So Jesus, being a Galilean Jew, and of course Jesus being Jesus, he's cool anyhow, he decides he's going to go through Samaria. So he had to travel through Samaria. It's the shortest route. Let's get there quickly. He comes to a town called Sychar and, and named that prop, uh, the property was named after Jacob, who had been given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. Now, this is important because at the time, people didn't travel around with bottled waters. They had canteens and things like that, but eventually those would run out, so they would go and they'd find wells. And so this well was there, and worn out from the journey, he sat down by the well, and it was about noon. You go, why did he give all this detail? Well, it's important. At noontime, people typically wouldn't be at the well. They are there in the early morning. They're there in the evening. Especially women would come out in the early morning and evening, and typically people wouldn't be there at noon. Jesus comes. He's passing by. He's going to get a drink. He stops there, and this woman comes out at noon, which is a little unusual. Could be an indication that she's a bit of an outcast. Could be an indication that the woman of Samaria was somebody who the rest of the people around her said, you know what? That's somebody we don't deal with, and you'll see why as you move along. So she comes out, give me a drink, Jesus said to her, because his disciples had gone into town to buy food. How is it that you, a Jew, asked for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman, she asked, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Now, here's where you start to see that, that discrimination played out in their conversation. She looks to him and he says, you're, you're a Jew. And Jews don't talk to us Samaritans. She kind of flipped it. She doesn't say, We're, we Samaritans don't talk to Jews. She says, no, you guys, you don't like us. That's caught her by surprise. And furthermore, she's probably an outcast because she was there at noontime when nobody else was around. She like waited until that time to come out. So she's already felt like she's been oppressed in her life, judged, discriminated against. But Jesus answers, if you knew the gift of God, which when you go through the whole book of John, you realize the gift of God is Jesus Christ himself. If you knew Jesus Christ is the gift of God and who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him and he would give you living water. To which the woman replies, sir, said the woman, you don't even have a bucket. So she's really confused now. And the well is deep. So where do you get this supposed living water, right? You aren't greater than the father Jacob, are you? He gave us the well and drank from it himself and and did his sons and livestock. And Jesus said, everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty. In fact, the water I will give him will become a well of water springing uh, springing up in him eternal life. Sir, the woman said. Now, here's something interesting. Depending on different teachers, and I'm probably more in the minority on this, some would say, oh, she, she understood, and so she's like, oh, please give me this water. I think she's probably saying it sarcastically. Like, oh, yeah, give me this water. Like, oh, you talk about this water that we can just drink, and all of a sudden we're, like, filled and everything? Yeah, give me this water so I won't get thirsty again. I love that idea. And come here to dry water, to draw water. 
So Jesus continues the conversation. He doesn't just cut it off right there. He continues the conversation. He goes, go call your husband, he told her, and come back here. So she then responds, well, I don't have a husband, she answered. Jesus says, you've correctly said, I don't have a husband. For you've had five husbands. And the, one, the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And I think it's at this point that the light goes off or on. Sir, the woman replied, I see that you're a prophet. She doesn't call him the Messiah, but she knows that he is, he is from God. Ah. Because anybody who can, can just meet somebody and, and know their background right away obviously has some special insight. So she understands this guy is from God. Now, up to this point, she's a Samaritan woman, comes out in the middle of the day, probably is of a lifestyle, uh, just assume from that, that that other people don't see as a good lifestyle. So she's in, out on her own in the middle of the day. Now we see that morally she's had five husbands and now she's living with somebody else. At this point, you just could have said, woman, you are messed up. And just kind of thrown her to the side. But he doesn't. He goes on. He says, our fathers, she asked the question, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews say the place of worship is in Jerusalem. And Jesus continues to show grace and mercy and answer questions. He says, believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know, but we Jews, we worship what we do know. Now, Jesus makes a distinction here, and he says something that's true. Okay, he's not trying to be discriminatory at this point. He's saying this is true. The Jews have been descendants of, the, the, of Abraham. They have the word. They worship in Jerusalem. So he says, yes, we do know some things that maybe the Samaritans don't. But furthermore, we know that salvation is to come from the Jews. And Jesus himself was a Jew, is a Jew, and came from the Jews. And so, yes, Jesus Christ is the answer and salvation. So he goes on, he says, but an hour is coming, speaking of the future, and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. And it won't be about a mountain. It won't be about Jerusalem or Samaria or what part of the land it's in. It'll be in the spirit. Yes, the fathers want wants, uh, such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that the Messiah is coming who is called Christ When he comes, he will explain everything to us. And Jesus told her, I, the one speaking to you, am he. That's interesting, I think, when you look over this passage, that when other people discriminate and maybe see a a race, a different race, maybe see a different gender, maybe see a different lifestyle, that Jesus approaches somebody in that same category and first treats people, the person he's talking to, with respect. All the way through this. He doesn't argue. He doesn't point out all the mistakes and say, yeah, you are really messed up or anything like that. He doesn't say anything to her that would, would cause her to, to really you know, look at herself and go, well, man, this guy hates me. He doesn't. Now, he does say a few things about Jews and, and Samaritans and the, the difference. But he, he does so in a, in a way that's respectful, in a way that shows respect. So Jesus treats people with respect. He points people to salvation all the way through it, 
right? He's saying, no, you need to know about Christ. You need to know about the one who is here standing in front of you. If you know what the gift of God is, you wouldn't be asking me about physical water. You'd be asking me about something spiritual and what could be given to you. So he points people to salvation and doesn't try to make it into a, well, you're a Samaritan, so I'm not going to spend time with you and make it a political issue or anything like that. He doesn't make it into any of those issues. He makes it into a salvation issue. You need to know what salvation is. And Jesus shows grace through it. Shows grace all the way through the conversation and patience. When you sit down and have a conversation and somebody starts arguing with you about something, I've got to admit, it's hard to show patience. A few weeks ago, I was sitting in a, a restaurant. A guy comes by and he starts talking to me about how the earth is flat and how I need to have a King James Bible only. And, and if I do all of that, I'll understand who God is and be a better disciple. And I was like, What? And I want to I argue with them and debate. And they're like, no, I need to show patience and grace. Um, it takes, it's difficult in that situation to be, to be patient and gracious. But Jesus shows grace all through this conversation. And ultimately, Jesus reveals himself, his character. Now, we have a responsibility to reveal Christ as well. That goes back to pointing people to salvation, but, but ultimately he leads this woman to a point where he can say, yes, the Messiah is, is right here in front of you. The one you're looking for is right here in front of you. The hope that you need is right here in front of you, and that's where we need to point people. There is a lot of discrimination and hate surrounding the subject of discrimination and hate. Isn't that true? It always is interesting to me that, you know, the people holding the stop discrimination and hate signs are often the ones showing the most discrimination and hate. There's a lot of of hatred around this topic. And so to be the light that Jesus calls us to be, we have to show love, grace, and mercy while maintaining our integrity and the truth that Scripture has in front of us. To the unbeliever, we want to point them to Christ. To the one who is already in a relationship with Christ, we want to help and encourage and hold them accountable to be more like Christ. And as a church, we have every right to do that. We are called to do that. It is our responsibility as people who follow God to help one another pursue Christ. It's our responsibility to do that. And so there will be times when the judgment call has to be made. And when somebody has to approach you and say, you know what, what you're doing right now isn't right. And that's hard. I hope and pray that your response is, when that one person does it, your response is, you're right, I see that. And I'm going to make amends, and I'm going to, I'm going to come before the Lord, and I'm going to repent and apologize and ask for forgiveness, and, and maybe even ask you for forgiveness. But there's also something else in this whole situation as I look at my own heart is have I at some point discriminated against my own brothers and sisters in Christ and against people who are not my brothers and sisters in Christ? And the reality is yes. I think there are times when I see what somebody is doing and I look at how they're living their life and I'm like, oh, man, I don't have time for that. Like if somebody, like I say, you know, a few weeks ago we were going through mental illness, I realized something, that when somebody's going through mental illness, you know what, they need like extra time. I'm like, I don't have time for that. 
oh, wait a minute. If God's calling me to disciple and help, then I better make time because that's what God has asked me to do. I got to check my heart and make sure it's not showing any kind of hatred or discrimination because God doesn't want us to do that. But he does want us to uphold his truth and know what is right and wrong and distinguish between right and wrong. So I hope that makes sense to you as you look at what the word has to say. Yes, we love. We do not hate. We do not judge those who are outside the church. We know that God has already cast the judgment on that. He says those who follow him are, are saved and have eternal life. Those who do not follow him and do not trust in Jesus Christ are not saved. And they need Christ, and so we continue to give them Christ. But once a person accepts Christ, then we have God's word and his truth, and he wants us to live according to that. And so we help hold each other accountable and live according to God's word. Father, help us to make sense of, of, of your word and what it has to say about this issue of discrimination and hate. Certainly, we want to follow you. We want to, we want to uh, know what your word has to say, apply it, and, and live it out. And so, Lord, if there's anything that is not clear in this, in this topic, in this discussion, that we would, would make it clear, whether it's through more conversations that happen after the service or whether it's through life group or whether it's through just taking it and reading through these passages again, help us to truly understand what it is you're communicating in your word. And, Lord, we want to mimic what you did there with that, that woman who is, who is a Samaritan, who was a different race, a different gender, a different lifestyle. We want to be able to, to love and care for those that maybe we wouldn't normally associate with so that we can point them to your son, Jesus Christ. And Father, look at our hearts. Help us to reflect. Lord, if there's any hatred or discrimination, bitterness, anger in our own hearts, that we would bring that before your throne right now. Search us. Help us to to see what you are bringing to our attention. May we confess that and know that we're, we're forgiven. And then, Lord, that person or people that we struggle with, may we pray for them regularly. And then take it a next step. May we be grateful. Help us to be grateful for them. Transform us as only you can do through the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.